in the new year, as, as we begin to, to dig into what God wants to do, I would like to spend the month of January just casting fresh vision. Just where is Kauai Bible Church going? What is God speaking to us? Uh, what is it going to look like? Uh, we just celebrated 50 years as a church last year, so now we're, we're embarking on our next 50 years, and uh, uh, what, what, what's going to happen? And so you heard Shannon talking about uh, getting a word every year, and that that's been kind of a, 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 a thing in her life for, for many years now. And so this year, for the first time, we applied it to the church leadership. I encourage the leadership team to pray and to seek words for Kauai Bible Church. And, and so we did, and we ended up with three words. And so for the next three Sundays, we're going to be preaching each one of those words. But today, before we get to preaching each one of those words, I want to lay the foundation, and I want to talk about the vision statement for this year or maybe longer than just this year. So today, we're going to lay the foundation in the next three Sundays. We're going to preach one word each as we talk about the theme words for Kauai Bible Church for this year. So I've titled this sermon series, this time of casting vision, I've titled it Family Ties. Family Ties. Now, I'm a child of the 80s, and so growing up in the 80s, Family Ties was one of my absolute favorite sitcoms, right? You had Michael J. Fox at the very beginning of his career playing Alex P. Keaton, this ultra-conservative high school kids, while his parents were the exact opposite. They were liberals from the hippie movement, and the whole show was about this back and forth and, and, and how they were so different as a family, and yet they stuck together because that's what family ties is, right, is that you stick together. So, so anyway, that's why we got the, the family ties, the, the early 80s font up there, and... Uh, uh, we want to talk about this, this idea of family ties, right? It's, it's actually, there's, there's a legal term, family ties, which not only defines the roles within a family, but really defines the responsibilities within a family, right? There's things that you're legally responsible for if you choose to have kids. There's things you're legally responsible for when you get married. Uh, there, there's, there's this legal sense of family ties, but then there's also this sense of just what binds us together, right? There's that old saying, the family ties that bind us. And believe it or not, that phrase, the ties that bind us together, actually comes from a hymn. Now, Shannon and I did not compare notes this week. She started the service with a hymn from 1773, and in my notes today, I've got a hymn from 1772. So who would have thought? God is just going ancient on us today, all right? We're, we're getting back to the ancient church. Or, uh, so if you've got your notes, you can find your notes uh, on your little mini bulletin today. Um, and then if you're watching this video from our website, the notes are attached to the video. And if you're listening to this audio podcast, the notes are attached to the audio. But here's our big picture point today. This is what we want to get to. As we cast vision for the new year, we are reminded of both the responsibility and the blessing of being in the family of God. I want to talk about the family ties that bind us when it comes to being in the family of God. 
that there are actually now not, I, I don't say legal things because uh, the church operates outside of that legal realm, but there are responsibilities. There are, there are things that are expected of us being a part of the family of God. There are also tremendous blessings. We are so blessed to have this ohana and all that God does uh, through us together as, as we do life together. So uh, I want us to, to understand that. So let's go back to the 1700s. There was a, a gentleman named John Fawcett who was born in England in 1740. At the age of 12 years old, he was orphaned. And, and so uh, he was given a, an apprenticeship. That was one way to help care for orphans. And so he was given an apprenticeship with a, with a tailor. And so, you know, he lived in the tailor shop and, and worked for this tailor and really kind of self-educated himself as a, as a young man. And then at 16 years old, he heard the preaching of George Whitfield. If you've never heard that name, George Whitfield was one of the great evangelists of the 1700s, both in Britain and in the colonies in America. In fact, he was one of the catalysts of the first great awakening in the colonies in America in the 1700s. And this young man, John Fawcett, at 16 years old, hears the preaching of George Whitfield and gives his life to Christ. And shortly after, he has such a, a radical conversion, and he's so passionate for Jesus that he begins preaching. In 1765, so he's 25 years old now, he is offered the opportunity to pastor for the first time. And it's a small, poor, rural Baptist church in Yorkshire, England. And so he goes and he pours himself into this little church and, and, and uh, you know, in an agricultural community. And for seven years, he serves this church faithfully and just gives this church everything that he has and preaches his heart out. And people begin to notice. And a significant church in London called him and invited him to come and be the pastor. And so after toiling in relative anonymity in this small rural church, now he gets the chance to go big time, right? He gets to go to the big city church, one of the most significant churches in London. And, and so he shares the news with his congregation, and uh, uh, he preaches his final sermon. They load up the wagons. He packs and is ready to go. And then they have this moment where the congregation comes to him and begs him, don't leave. And tears are shed as they stand together. And John Fawcett decided, I'm not going to go to London. I'm not going to go to the big time. My heart is here with these people. I'm going to stay here. John Fawcett pastored that little church in Yorkshire for the rest of his life. Never went anywhere else. Got invitations to start schools and be the president of organizations and pastor large churches. And he turned them all down. And in 1772, when he made that fateful decision to stay in Yorkshire, he wrote a hymn about it. And you can still find this hymn in hymnals today. And the hymn was called, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. There are many verses to this hymn, but I just want to read to you the first three verses. It says this, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. 
Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims, our one, our comforts, and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. John Fawcett understood the ties that bind. His heart was tied to that church. And there was no other place that he would rather be than to be with those people serving God faithfully in that place. I want to encourage us today to consider the family of God and what it means to be a part of this family. Galatians 6.10, Paul writes this. He says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Right? If you know, verse 9 of Galatians chapter 6 says, don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap the harvest if we don't lose hearts. And then he continues into this thought. Let us do good to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And I want to talk to you about this phrase, the household of the faith. In fact, we're going to look at it in three different spots in Paul's writing. This is the first one. The Greek word that he is writing here is, is oikos. Right, which isn't that like a yogurt or something? Now I'm pretty sure I don't know. I just um, or 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 chaos, and the idea being that the first word speaks of the whole household, and the second word speaks of an individual member within that household. But the idea of household is persons who live in the same place and compose a family or an extended family. So in biblical times, this included multi-generations, right? Several generations all lived in the same house together. So this was grandparents, parents, kids. But also in biblical times, the household also referred to any servants or sojourners who lived in the house with you. They were family. They were part of your household, right? And so in Old Testament times, every male in the household was circumcised, even if they weren't Jewish, because it represented the family, the household. In the New Testament, we read that entire households were water baptized when they came to Christ. Right? Think of the household of Cornelius, the first time that Peter preached the gospel to Gentiles. It says that Cornelius gathered all of his relatives together in the house. And Peter preached the gospel, and they all received Jesus, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, and their entire household was water baptized. Think about the household of the Philippian jailer when he was going to take his own life out of shame because he thought he had let all the prisoners go. And Paul said, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. And then Paul preached the gospel to him. And it says, to him and to all his household. And they were all saved and water baptized that night. Right, this, this representation of the household. And this was important in the culture. Households were seen as being corporately responsible for the honor of the family. And so I want us to understand that when Paul is talking about the household of the faith, he is talking about that as believers together, we are a family. We are an extended family. And that we are responsible for one another. 
and that there is a sense of togetherness and, and a sense of purpose together in who we are. Now, in this particular verse, Paul says we should do good to everybody but especially to those of the household of the faith, right? Which means we have an ethical imperative to do good to all people as everyone is created in the image of God and is infinitely precious in his sight, right? Which is why we have this sign above the door that says every person matters, right? We want to go out knowing that every person we run into was created by God, is precious in his sight, and we should do good to that person. But it's interesting that while we have this imperative, this commandment to do good to everybody, we have an even greater obligation to do good to other Christians we fellowship with in the family of God. He says, do good to everybody, but especially those in the household of the faith. I want to read this quote to you. It's kind of long, so it's going to span several slides. But it was written by John Brown, who was a Scottish pastor and theologian back in the 1700s. He actually wrote a systematic theology in the 1780s that is still sought after today. And John Brown wrote this. He said, Every poor and distressed man had a claim on me for pity. And if I could afford it, for active exertion and pecuniary relief. But a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings, my labors, and my property. He is my brother, equally interested as myself in the blood and love of the Redeemer. I expect to spend an eternity with him in heaven. He is the representative of my unseen Savior, and he considers everything done to his poor afflicted as done to himself. For a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong, it is monstrous. Not only wrong, it is monstrous, right? There was this sense, this obligation of what it means to be a family together in God. The great Billy Graham said it like this, If people stumble, we help them get back on their feet. If they veer off course, we urge them back. On this journey, we are all brothers and sisters in the same family, the family of God. So let's talk about the ties that bind us. And you can see this in your notes. Christ is the strongest tie that binds us together as the household of the faith. Right? It's our faith in Jesus. It's the redemption that we found in him. It's the fact that he is our common Lord and Savior. We have one Lord. There is one spirit. There is one baptism. We are one. And it doesn't matter if we come from different places, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different skin colors. Uh, we make different amounts of money. Uh, we've got different stories. We are all bound together by Christ that when we gather together, we are his family and we are one. And no matter what happens or what we go through, nothing should break that tie. But there are some other ties that bind us. One would be a common love. Right? Jesus said, you will be known as my disciples by the way that you love one another. And so just as we have a common love for God, we have a common love for one another. Right, that we're going to stick together. We love each other. We're going to take care of each other. We're going to be there for each other because this is what it means to be family. How about a common mission? 
Right? Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then when Jesus knew that his time on earth was done, he commissioned his followers with the same purpose, to seek and to save that which is lost, to advance the kingdom of God, to bring more and more people into the kingdom. And so as a part of this family, we know we have a common mission. We're on mission together. We have the same purpose. Now, we all have different skills and gifts. We all have different ways that we contribute to that mission, but that we all have the same mission. And as long as we keep our eyes on the purpose of God, we'll stick together. We'll stick together. And how about a common responsibility? A common sense of commitment. This is our church. We are responsible for it. We're responsible for one another, to take care of one another. If someone's hurting, we lift them up. We comfort them. We stand with them. If someone's having a financial emergency, we take care of them, and we make sure that we get them through it. Uh, You know, we're responsible to come. Hey, we take care of the facility, the building, the landscaping looks beautiful because guys came out yesterday and and, and took care of it, right? We share a common responsibility. This is our church. We're the church. Right? We don't think to ourselves, man, somebody should take care of this or somebody should do that. No, we are the somebody. We take care of it. We do it because we have this common responsibility to what it means to be a part of this family. Are you guys tracking with me? All right, so let's dig into theology then. What does this look like as, as we dig into the word, the, the preeminence of the family of God? Preeminence is a, fam- a fancy word that just simply means the most important. Preeminent means it comes first. And so there's this challenging thought that the church comes first, that the family of God comes first, even before our biological family. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't take care of our kids, right? We're, we're responsible for that. The Bible says if you don't take care of your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever, right? So we, we're responsible for our family and for our kids, but there is this sense of preeminence that the family of God comes first, that there is a greater priority that I'm a part of the family of God than just simply I'm a part of the family that's denoted by my last name, the preeminence. So coming to Christ involves three things, right? The first thing it involves is a rebirth. Jesus said this in his late night meeting with Nicodemus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, right? Nicodemus is like, what? How are we born again? We can't crawl back into our mother's womb. And so Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, right? So being born of water means that we are born of the flesh, Right? Our first birth was when we were born as babies. But we have a second birth when we are born of the Spirit, when we come to Christ and we give ourselves to Him as Lord and Savior, that we are born again, that something new is birthed within us. We are not the same person anymore. There is a rebirth. The second thing is there is a transfer of kingdoms. Colossians chapter 1 says it like this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
So when we come to Christ for redemption, where before we lived in the kingdom of darkness, we were under the powers of this world. We were slaves to our sin, and, and, and we were uh, under the authority of the prince of the power of the air and, and all of the evil things that operate in this world. And the Bible says that when we come to Christ, when we are redeemed, we are rescued from that domain of darkness, and we are transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son that we get to operate in a new kingdom. And then the third thing that happens when we come to Christ is an adoption. Romans 8.15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So there is an adoption that takes place. Not only are we born again, but we are adopted into a new family. And so if you can kind of picture this, there is that God is the father of the family and that Jesus Christ is the eldest brother of the family, right? The Bible says he is the firstborn of all creation. And, and in, in biblical culture, the firstborn had the rights to everything, right? The firstborn had all the inheritance, all the titles. Everything went to the firstborn. So Christ is the eldest brother, but it says that we are co-heirs with Christ, which means we have access to the same inheritance, which is and eternity in the kingdom of God, in a place that we call heaven, right? We are co-heirs with Christ. So we are adopted into the family of God. That's why in churches, uh, not as much today as in old-fashioned times, but that's why we call each other brother and sister, right? It's because we recognize we've all been adopted into the same family and that we are the church family and that there is a preeminence to this church family. Think about some of the things that Jesus said. I'm going a little bit out of order here, Antonio, so you got to jump down a little bit. But in Mark chapter 3, in verse 31, it says, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. Right? So Jesus is sitting in the middle of a crowd teaching, and his mom and his brothers show up, and they're calling to him. Now, the reason they're calling to him is because Jesus is walking around preaching the kingdom of God and preaching himself as the Messiah, and they're not completely sold on it, so they think he's embarrassing the family, and so they're trying to stop him. So they're calling to him, we need to talk to Jesus. So a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Right? Jesus was establishing a new preeminence of family. And this would have been shocking in Jewish culture. Because family was everything in Jewish culture. And Jesus said, no, my family is those who do the will of God, right? He was establishing this new sense of the preeminence of the family of God. 
In Luke 14, 26, he said it like this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus was using a, a technique here. Uh, a, a, a form of using a superlative to get a point across. Jesus does not want us to hate people, all right? What Jesus was saying is that your love for me and my family should be so great that your love for everyone else would just look like hate. Right? You guys tracking with me here? So again, what he was saying is coming to me takes preeminence even over mom and dad, spouse, children, brothers, and sisters. There is a new preeminence of the family of God. Mother Teresa said it like this. She said, the problem with the world is that we draw the circle of our family too small. Right? We get so caught up in just the nuclear family, I'm just going to take care of people that have the same last name as me, that we miss the beauty of drawing a circle around this family, the church, and all that we've been called to be a part of. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, and this is where we'll camp out and, and, and bring this thing to a, a conclusion here in, in just a little bit, is, is around this teaching from Paul. If you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, uh, the first part is where Paul teaches that that we are saved by faith in Christ. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is a gift from God, right? So we are not saved by anything that we do. Uh, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And then Ephesians 2.10, which is the core scripture of our entire discipleship program here at Kauai Bible Church, for we are God's workmanship, or in other translations, for we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus to do the good works he planned for us long ago. Right? So that's the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. Then he begins to teach about uh, the importance of Jews and Gentiles coming together. So let's pick it up in verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." Now, some of you were raised in church. You were introduced to the goodness of God from the very beginning of your life, and praise God for that. But some of us can relate to having no hope and being without God in the world. That's a hard place to live, but many of us have lived there. We understand what it means to not have access to the promise, to feel like we're on the outside, we're broken. But then look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, 
So what is he saying here? He is saying that before Jesus, the promises of God were only through the nation of Israel. That you had to be able to trace your family line back to Abraham to claim that you were Jewish to have access to the promises of God. By the time Jesus came, the Jews were so caught up in their family heritage and in following the rules that they had lost the heart of God. And Jesus came not just for the Jews, he came for the whole world to bring the whole world into salvation and they open the door for everybody. And so what Paul is saying here is that now through the blood of Jesus, when we come to salvation, we all come together as one. There is no Jew and non-Jew. It's not just those who can trace their family lineage back to Abraham who have access to the promises of God. Now we all have access to the promises of God. And now the blessings of God no longer flow through the nation of Israel, but the promises of Israel are now the church. We are the promises of Israel. Right, And we have now come together in one body, the church, through the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. You guys tracking with this so far? All right. Now, Paul shifts gears and begins to talk about this one body, this church, and what it means to be this family of God. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, which was the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, which was the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Here's the second reference to household I was telling you about. You are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Right, So as the church, as we come to Christ and we are now made whole in one body, it says that we are citizens of a kingdom and we are members of a family, right? We are citizens of a kingdom and we are members of a family. That's what he said in verse 19. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and you are of the household of God. We are citizens of the kingdom. Right? And that takes preeminence in our lives. There is a, a phrase that is out there. You may hear it when people are discussing politics, but that phrase is called Christian nationalism. What does that mean? That means that when you tie together your identity as a Christian with your identity with your citizenship to a country. So for most of us here, if we are citizens of the United States, then that means that we tie together our, 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 our identity in Jesus with the fact that we are American. Well, why is that wrong? Well, because first off, it's created this myth that America is somehow the instrument of God that is supposed to bring the kingdom of God. That's not true. The church is the instrument of God. We are the ones that are responsible for bringing the kingdom of God into the world and doing the work of the kingdom. Not America. But when we have this Christian nationalism and we think that America is the instrument, then we think that our politicians and our judges are the instruments, and they are not. 
They are just people doing their job, serving a country. It's our job as the church to be the instrument of Christ in the world. The other reason it's wrong is because then just as much as we think that America is the instrument of God, just like the Jews thought Israel was the instrument of God, and we create a wall of separation that Paul was preaching against right here. And so that is why you'll find for me as your pastor, listen, if if God calls you to get involved in politics and you're passionate about that, man, by all means pursue that. That's your call. That's your purpose. By all means pursue that. But that's why you don't ever hear me preaching about politics or getting involved in politics. Because that's not our purpose as the church of God, as the family of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And our job is to advance the kingdom of heaven. All right, are you guys with me still? All right, I know getting into politics is dangerous, so, but I feel it's important as your pastor to teach you guys the truth. So we are citizens of a kingdom, and we are members of a family, a family that now takes preeminence in our life. And let's look at the last mention of the household of God written by Paul, 1 Timothy 3.15. I'm making Antonio work today. I'm all over the place. Here we go. Paul writes to Timothy, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So the household of God, the family of God is the church. And he says, I'm writing to you because in the church we are supposed to learn how we conduct ourselves in the kingdom. So there is a principle in the church that within the family of God, together we are growing into who we were created to be, both as individuals, but also corporately as a family. That as a family, Kauai Bible Church, we are continually growing and learning. So that's why when we are born again, when we come to Jesus, we don't know how to conduct ourselves in the kingdom. We just know that suddenly we've fallen in love with this Jesus who loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. And I am willing to trust him as the Lord of my life. And he puts the Holy Spirit inside of me and does something new in my life. And I'm like, wow, something new is happening in my life. But I don't know how to conduct myself in the kingdom. I don't, I don't know how I'm supposed to behave. I got a bunch of old behaviors from my old life that, that I'm kind of stuck in. And that's the beauty of being adopted into the family of God, that it's in the family, it's in the household of God where we learn new behaviors and new ways of life and we grow together and we learn how to live life together and we discover who we are and what our purpose is in the kingdom. Mark Batterson, who's a great pastor in Washington, D.C., he says it like this, as a child of God, you aren't just a manifestation of your biological family. You are a manifestation of your spiritual family, your true family of origin. Amen. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up today. And I just wanted to be real purposeful about getting us excited about the importance of this family and understanding the ties that we have together, the ties that bind us. But all of that is leading up to talking about what is, what is this new vision statement for 2023? What is this thing that we're talking about that we want to go after together as a church? 
And so as a leadership team, we've spent the last several months praying through this and discussing it and getting words from the Lord and, and, and understanding what God is speaking to us. And, and, and really what we looked at is Kauai, just like it was in ancient Israel, family is huge. Right? It's family is huge. Taking care of your family, your extended family, family gatherings, protecting the family. All of that is huge in Kauai. And so, as we were on this journey trying to hear from the Lord, we were asking the question how do we connect this cultural thing in Kauai, which is that family is so important? How do we connect that to everything I just taught you about the significance of the family of God? in a way that would be compelling, that we would be excited to be a part of it. And that journey has led to this phrase and what we want to accomplish, and that is this. Every member of your family finding and fulfilling their purpose in God's family. Every member of your family finding and fulfilling their purpose in God's family. Right? Every one of us can think of family members that we wish were in church, For some of us, it's a spouse. We come to church alone because our spouse doesn't come to church with us. For some of us, it's adult children that have walked away from the Lord. Maybe it's a sister or a brother or an extended family member, right? We've we've got family that we wish they were in church. And so my hope and prayer is that this vision statement catches your heart and says, yes, I want my family in church. But listen, people aren't just going to come to church just because we open the doors. All right, they're going to come to church because something compelling is happening in their life. They're beginning to experience Jesus. Their heart is beginning to soften. Walls are coming down. Their ears are starting to open when you talk about Jesus and his gospel, and they're, they're willing to listen, and, and, and they're beginning to change. But listen, when they come to church, we don't just want them to just come to church and be the same. No, the compelling thing about church is when you find your purpose and you're equipped to begin to live out your purpose. And suddenly life has so much more meaning. And so obviously that's what the masterpiece process is all about with Ephesians 2.10. For many of us that are right in the middle of the journey right now, that we're discovering what's our purpose, what's our fit, what's our place, what are we supposed to be doing? We're breaking old behaviors and we're learning new behaviors and we're, uh, and, and we're discovering how God wired us so that we can best be a part of this family. We want to see other members of our family come to church and find Christ and find their purpose. And then we want to see new families from the community come in and be like, yes, this is where I want to be because I want to find purpose. I want my life to have meaning. So this is our heart, you guys. Every member of your family finding and fulfilling their purpose in God's family. There's also a multi-generational aspect to this. That no matter what age you're in, what season of life you're in, from the oldest to the youngest, we all have a purpose in this family. We all matter in this family. And we want to be an intergenerational family where together we all find our place, we minister to one another, and we see the kingdom of God thrive because of the work that happens in Kauai Bible Church. Amen? Will you stand together with me? Are you guys feeling this? Is this a vision we can get behind as a church? Hallelujah. Come on, I want to pray over this, and then we're just going to sing a song of blessing over our families. You're probably familiar with this song. We, We love this song here. Jesus, Jesus, 
Lord, I pray that the truth of your word would sink into our hearts, that those things that were spoken today, uh, Lord, would get a hold of us. I pray for anybody that's hearing this message that has never understood the power of the gospel in their lives, would understand that Jesus shed their blood for them, and today would be a day of decision where they decide, I want to be born again. I want to be adopted in the family of God. I want my sins forgiven. I want to be made new. And today would be a day of salvation. And they would make a decision, even now, to surrender their life to Jesus as Lord. And they would begin to experience this new love and this new passion welling up within them. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would walk away with a greater understanding of the family of God. Lord God, and a greater passion for the ties that bind us together and, and what makes it significant that we're a part of this family. There's churches all over the world. There's churches all over Kauai, but we've been called to this family and what binds us together in this place and the work that we've been called to do together, Lord. I pray each one of us would have something new in our hearts that says, this is why I'm bound to this family. This is what ties me. Jesus, Jesus. And then, Lord, I pray over this new vision statement. I pray it catches our hearts. Lord God, I pray that you would give us wisdom in how we put it into practice. And I pray that throughout this year, we would begin to see family members coming to Christ, joining us for church. Those that we've been talking about Jesus to for years, but now would be the time that the seeds would take hold and begin to produce fruit in their lives. We've been living before them. We've been letting our lives shine as an example, our light shining. The way we love, the way we forgive, the way we live. Lord, let all of it, oh God, speak this powerful truth into their lives. And I pray, Lord, for the masterpiece process and all the things we do together in discipleship, that as each one of us begins to find our purpose and our place and our fit, and as each one of us becomes more and more active in the kingdom of God, Oh, it's going to be attractive. It's going to be contagious. It's going to draw people in. And as we just read, we're going to be a temple growing together. More and more housing the presence of God. And more and more fulfilling the purposes of the kingdom. Thank you for that, Jesus. We give you all the praise for this, Lord. Let this mark the beginning of the journey of 2023 as a church. And all that we're going to do together. We thank you for this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's worship him.